Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is John Warillo. He's the founder of the Value Builder System, a practice management software for business advisors. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, has been internationally recognised as one of the best business books. He's also the host of the Built to Sell radio. But before we get a chance to speak with John, it's the Leadership Hacker News. So as we head towards the end of the summer holidays, business leaders and team leaders are going to start thinking about how to get ready for 2022. Although we can't predict the future, we can say that next year will not be a return to business as usual. The pandemic, social unrest, cultural divisions, new remote or hybrid working, schooling possibilities, all but guarantee that leading teams and businesses in the coming year will be anything but business as usual. The technological trends in which workers will need to learn new skill sets outside of their roles, combined with new ways of working, remote, in-person or hybrid of the two, will require leaders to be nimble, empathetic and inclusive as well as strategically focused. So how do we get ready for 2022 and beyond? Use technology in human ways and for human reasons. When it comes to even the near future, the ability to adapt to new technology is always going to be a priority and the question hovers in the minds of its workforce is this tool a force of good or the enemy? Professor Roshni Ravindran's research explores the integration of novel technologies into the workplace and where those technologies intersect with the psychology of human behaviour. With studies including examination of monitoring technology and the use of virtual and augmented reality, Ravindran keeps focus on the use of new systems to augment human life and how to use those new technologies responsibly. For example, the use of avatars may relieve a sense of social threat through psychological distance, or an organization's behavior tracking application may be used for better if it's for the information for its employees to self-analyze rather than making them feel monitored constantly. As companies start thinking about making remote work a long-term reality, one key challenge pertains to the missing social connection, the feeling of being part of the same group, says Ravindran. So there'll be a lot more demand for immersive technologies like virtual reality. That's why it's important for us to understand the psychology that drives people to adopt some of those technologies. Let's look at maintaining and improving company culture. If a company does maintain remote work as a status quo, how can leaders nurture a sense of teamwork and company culture across a distance and the difference that might exist? Well, Darden's professor, Laura Morgan Roberts is an expert in human potential, diversity and leadership development. She notes compassionate responsive leadership is what every organisation needs whether it's face to face or screen to screen. Because learning needs to happen so rapidly, the fastest route is often peer to peer through non-linear ways of thinking. Even after a crisis there will be a normal, a normality 
and leaders need to map out old values and behaviours and norms, even especially the unspoken ones, and then contrast them with what we now know to be the normal as it is today, or as we'd like it to be. As companies compete and grow, the successful ones will emphasise with a culture of inclusivity, authentic ways of developing and retaining their talent. And the last thing I want to call out for how organisations and teams can get set up for 2022 is advance your diversity efforts and intelligent inclusion. As we move forward next year, or any year for that matter, successful leaders will forge beyond diversity efforts and developing minority talent, pushing their organisations to embrace the importance of intelligent inclusion. Ultimately, the impact of diversity, equity and inclusion efforts, however well-meaning, will depend on how they're viewed. Professor Martin Davidson, who also serves as Darden's Senior Associate Dean and Global Chief Diversity Officer, says, Creating an inclusion climate is an inherently ambiguous task. How organisations undertake inclusion matters is key. Decades of research in social psychology and organisational behaviour show us that when individuals question the value of group identity, the social identity threats they register are massively damaging not just to the individual, but to the individual's relationship with the organisation they work in. Davidson explores how those organisations can design and institute programmes and policies that work to eliminate racial inequality by reducing that psychological reactivity that arises in response to any racial friction. While Davidson's research was focused on racial equality, for me, intelligent inclusion is about any minority. Age race, religion, sexuality, cultures, the more we can recognise that we're all in the same boat, heading in the same direction, the better we can serve each other. That's been the Leadership Packer News. If you have any news, insights or any information you'd like us to showcase on the show, please get in touch. Our special guest on today's show is John Warrillo. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, he's a podcast host, and he's also the founder and CEO of the Value Builder System. John, welcome to the Leadership Hacker Podcast. Hey, good to be with you, Steve. So delighted to have a fellow podcaster and uh, entrepreneur on the show today. But for the folks that are listening for the first time that may not have heard a little bit about your backstory, let's just give us a little flavor of you know, how you ended up creating the Value Builder system and doing what you're doing now. Oh, man, it, it goes back 25 years ago. I I had a market research business where we did quantitative market research for big companies. And I went and we had a decent sized company. I think we were five or 6 million in revenue, uh, 20, 30% profit margin. So it was, a, it was a good business. And I thought I was sitting on a gold mine. And I went to see an MA professional, a guy named Perry Miele in Toronto. And I said, you know, what do you think it's worth? And I was kind of rubbing my hands together, waiting for his number. And he said, well, it kind of depends on the answer to a couple of questions. And I said, shoot. He said, all right, so like you do research. I'm like, yep. It's like, who does the research? And at the time we worked with these massive companies, Bank of America and Apple and JP Morgan Chase. And so I was involved. So I said, well, I'm involved in the research. He said, all right, who does the selling? And I'm like, we're working with these giant companies. Of course I'm doing some of the selling, right? He says, okay, well, John, there's nothing here I can sell. Your, your company's worthless. Wow. And, uh, man, that, that was tough to hear for me, especially going into that meeting thinking I was sort of sitting on this gold mine, kind of counting my shackles, so to speak, and, and, and you know, leaving, realizing that I had built this business that was effectively unsellable. And I spent the better part of, I guess, three years really trying to listen to what Perry had to say and, and others, frankly, and, 
and transformed that business, made, made a bunch of changes. We, we created a subscription model. I got out of doing the selling, I got out of doing the research. Long story short, it was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listing company in 2009. Uh, so it had a happy ending, but it, I think, kicked off for me this sort of lifelong journey that I'm on to this day, which is to really discover what drives the value of a business. And hopefully, you know, you're talking about purpose-driven leadership, hopefully helping other entrepreneurs, uh, you know, not have to experience what I felt and, and maybe save them some years off their lives by building a business from the start that's, that's, that's valuable. So I've written a few books on that topic. And of course, Value Builder is a software platform that, that advisors use to, to help their clients sort of understand some of these principles. So that's me in a, in a kind of nutshell. Was that kind of an epiphany for you at the time where you had a perception there was value in the business because of its turnover, yet when it came down to its underlying asset value, there was a real mismatch? Was that the kind of defining moment to set you on this path, I guess? Yeah, I walked around thinking my business is going to be valuable because it's profitable, and because we have great clients and people would say to me, they would say, wow, you work with Bank of America, you work with IBM, you, you know, fill in the blank, large uh, enterprise organization. You're going to be, you know, this business is going to be valuable. And, and I was under the impression that, a, that an acquirer would buy us for our client list. So my focus for many years was to really win clients that were prestigious clients, right? We work with British Telecom, biggest, you know, telephony company and, in Europe at the time. And that was an aspiration for us, not because they were necessarily great clients or the biggest revenue, but because we could put that logo on our you know, PowerPoint slide deck to say, hey, we work with British Telecom. In the end, I was chasing the wrong stuff. Uh, what I came to learn was that clients are great and having kind of blue chip clients can help the value of your company, but they're not going to make the value of your company. They're their ancillary or tertiary to the overall value. So it was a real learning experience for me. What's your experience then, John, in helping other entrepreneurs on this path when they start to think and realize that value isn't derived from turnover? Yeah, it can be a, it can be a bit uh, bit difficult, right? Because again, we, we have these yardsticks, I think, as entrepreneurs, where as a society, we celebrate top line turnover, right? Like that's, all the, the newspaper articles and the magazine articles are like, this company is growing this quickly and their top line revenue is this uh, amount of money. Yet it's generally not necessarily the most important driver for value. I'm reminded I, I did two, you mentioned Build to Sell Radio in the intro of podcast I do where I interviewed different entrepreneurs. I did two, in, two interviews kind of back to back a few months ago. And one guy distributed a product. And distribution companies, by, by their nature, are terrible businesses to sell. They're really difficult to sell. And he distributed a product, built it up to $15 million in revenue turnover, and, and ultimately sold it for 25% of one year's revenue. Literally the next day, I did an interview with a guy named Rob Walling, who built a company called Drip, which was a SaaS product, software as a service product. And he focused exclusively on this one product, focused 100% on recurring revenue, and built it to just $2 million of turnover. So the day before, I talked to a guy who sold for or had a business with $15 million in turnover, who sold for 25% of one-year revenue. The next day, I learned from Rob Walling that he sold his $2 million turnover business for somewhere between 9 and 13 times top-line revenue. I didn't 
you know, you didn't show the exact number, but it was, it was a multiple of revenue, not a multiple of profit. Mm. And it was a large, a high multiple of revenue. And it, it just was such a black and white contrast for me of, of here's two companies. One is a fraction of the size of another, yet the tiny company is trading at a much, much higher value than the large company. And so I think we, we, we boast about and kind of, you know, put out our chest and say, yeah, we get a million in turnover or we, you know, we got 10 employees or we're at 5 million in turnover, whatever the, the boast is. But oftentimes it, it's, it's this kind of revenue sort of vanity, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs. And yet the real value oftentimes is not in the revenue. It's in the other elements of your business. So what are they, John? What are the other elements that you would really drive conversations to, to focus on value? I mean, probably the biggest one, I think is, is finding something, an area where you can absolutely dominate one, one, one feature, one product, one uh, offering where you can be the dominant provider. Because again, when you look at an acquirer, if you put your, your, your acquirer hat on for a second, they've got generally tons of money. They've got tons of resources. If you're just selling a commoditized product, if you're offering something where you're competing on price, you're responding to RFPs, you're, you know, you're selling by ounce or pound or whatever, that large enterprise organization is just going to basically come to the conclusion that it's a lot cheaper to compete with you than it would be to buy you. So they're just going to lower the price in the market for that service or product, right. get in a bidding war with you and basically pick up your business. Whereas if you do something really unique, they're going to draw the conclusion that, man, it would take years to, to replicate what they have built. Um, you know, if you go back to Rob Walling and Drip, he had a really beautiful, elegant email marketing software, which Lead Pages, which was ultimately his acquirer, didn't have. And he had some features that would have taken years to build out. And he was had a two or three year head start. Could Lead Pages with enough developers have replicated Drip? Of course. But for Lead Pages, where time was money, they thought, you know what, this is too unique. We can just acquire this. And I think, again, going back to distribution companies and why that $15 million distribution company was so difficult to sell and ultimately got such a huge discount is they're not selling anything unique. They're just, they're basically taking someone else's product and, and, and selling it. And again, if you're a Fortune 500 or a large enterprise organization, you can simply do that without buying the company right yeah it's a really interesting perspective isn't it and also there's been some recent articles around the human capital element that plays into that value stream so that's the people on your balance sheet versus the assets on your balance sheet how do you frame that in yeah look the the people on your team again a lot of acquirers will look at that and say could we uh could we recruit all these people with some unique skill set the answer, of course, is yes. With enough money and time, you could. In many cases, an acquirer will look at that and say, you know what, it's just going to be a lot cheaper. Rather than spend two years and many hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds on a recruiter, why don't I just buy this company? Now, those valuations that are referred to as aqua hires in the industry, those generally are much lower than you would you would expect from an acquirer who is who is placing value on other elements of what you do. So I don't think you're going to get the highest valuation for your business if you're just looking at, at an aqua hire, effectively you're selling your team, uh, but you will get some value for that. In particular, if they have 
some unique skill set that that is you know obviously if you if you have a bunch of people who are doing AI right now or even people who have a real skill set in the area of digital marketing those are those are those are very hard to come by and so someone might value that um, that team of yours but but generally that's not going to be an astronomical multiple relative to having some sort of unique product that that is more valuable sure is there anything in the value set that you look at that should be avoided by potential entrepreneurs interesting yeah i mean again i think cross-selling is probably one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make and they come by it honestly because if you listen and talk to virtually any sales and marketing guru that gets the stage or writes a book they'll tell you that cross-selling an existing customer is like eight or nine times cheaper than going and winning a new customer and so most entrepreneurs hear that they're focused on scale and growing and top line revenue. And so they say, great, we've got a few customers, let's cross them. And by doing that, they're ultimately diluting their value proposition and ultimately making the business in many cases less sellable, certainly less valuable than it would be if they stuck to their knitting. I'll give you an example. There's a woman uh, I interviewed on Built This On Radio named Stephanie Breedlove. She built up a, a payroll company and they had a special niche where they did payroll for parents who had a nanny, an au pair to pay, to pay. And her niche was, was very small. And she reached a point at $300,000 in revenue where it started to become harder for her to get new parents who had a nanny to pay. She was based in Texas. She was focused mostly locally. She reached $300,000 in revenue. So tiny business was just her and one employee. And she had this kind of fork in the road. She could go and although it would be hard, find new parents who had a nanny to pay, or she could do what everybody else was telling her to do, which was to cross sell other services to her existing customers, right? So what else do busy parents who have a nanny need? They need, you know, lawn care services and meal delivery services. You could go on and kind of brainstorm what busy parents need. And Breedlove was being told at the time that that's how you grow your business. Yet to her credit she did not do that she instead took the much harder road she went and said i'm going to double down and go find more parents who have a nanny to pay well 25 years later she built her business up to nine million dollars in revenue Ten thousand parents who have nannies to pay nine million dollars in revenue over 25 years it's not like the next tesla right like it's not a it's not a super fast growth company it's it's a it's a kind of 25 year overnight success it's a slow burn Yep. And she goes to sell it. She sells it to care.com. Care.com, I'm not sure if they have it in the UK, but basically if you plug in your postal code and it will render babysitters and au pairs in your local market that all be five-star rated. Have you seen that, Steve? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So she finds care.com and care.com at the time of the acquisition had 7 million subscribers. So she made the case, look, if just 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's 70,000 customers. We're a $9 million back, a company on the back of 10,000 customers. Mm. Long story short, Stephanie sold her $9 million business for $54 million. Wow. That's like six times revenue. That's yeah. like unbelievable. It doesn't make any sense on any valuation table you could possibly conceive of. And it would never have happened had she done what 95% of gurus would have told her to do at the time, which was to go cross sell her existing customers. Because care.com wanted 
a very elegant solution to provide payroll to their 7 million subscribers. They didn't want meal delivery services or lawn care services, right? Like they had a very specific need. And that's really where understanding what a strategic acquirer is looking for and sticking to your knit and doing one thing is where I think so much value can be added, but also undermined and, and lost if you sort of you know, follow the mantra of growth is good, you know, top line revenue is our, our number one goal. I think it can in many cases hurt you more than it can uh, help you. That's super fascinating and almost contradictory to what certainly I've heard and most people have mooted along the way because you build up a client base, you cross sell more revenue. So, but I get the whole focus on the whole be great at your niche or your niche and most importantly, be super, super good at that. And therefore it just grows and develops in its strength and capability, right? Yeah. And again, it comes back to if you put your acquirer hat on for a second. And, and when you're looking at a company, say, do we need, I mean, the question, they, they close the boardroom door, you're not invited to the meeting. And the head of corporate development sits down with the CEO and says, why are we buying this company again? And why don't we just compete with them? Are they doing something that unique, that special that we need to acquire them? Because it'll be a lot cheaper and a lot less disruptive if we just get in a price war with them. And for six months, drop our price 10% below them. We can sustain that way better than they can. Why don't we just do it and get in a price war? And then the corporate development head has to fight back to the CEO and say, no, but you don't get it. They've got something really unique that would take us years to build, uh, you know, uh, many millions of dollars to, to, to replicate. And that's the conversation that happens when you're not in the room. Yeah. And so if you're just selling a bunch of, I mean, like, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in, in North America, the, the cable providers had a monopoly and they would package up their television programming so that if you wanted like one or two channels, you couldn't buy the one or two channels. You'd have to buy like 200 channels. And it was the most frustrating thing on earth, right? Because all you wanted was a couple of channels and you're, you're paying for something you, you really don't need. Yeah. And then along comes Netflix and now Disney and all these discrete channels where you don't need cable anymore. And they're obviously losing customers in droves. Because people are like, all I want is ESPN, Disney, and Netflix, and I'm good. Yeah. And I don't need your 200 channels. It's exactly the same in Europe. Yeah. The acquirer of a business makes the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. You've written the book, Built to Sell, and it comes from that mindset of how you encourage entrepreneurs to consider building their business with the intention to sell at some point in the future. Tell us a little bit about what that mindset is and how we might need to reframe some of that thinking along the way. Yeah, I mean, the essence of building to sell is you're creating a company that can thrive without you, the entrepreneur, founder, doing all the work. And, and when you've created a business that can succeed without you personally doing the work, you've got all of the options. Like think of the, the poker player who gets like a royal flush dealt with. I mean, he's you can't lose basically. So you can, you can run your business uh, without having to do the hard lifting, right? The hard yards, as they say, you can just simply be the CEO and let your team sort of run the business and take lots of time away from the company. You could bring in a manager and literally leave and have the manager run the business while you kind of think of it as a passive asset as it were. Uh, you could bring in a private equity group and sell 60% of the company, put some cash in your jeans and, and, and then continue to run 
and, and get a, a sort of second tranche of equity when the private equity group sells. You can sell it to a strategic. I mean, just, you've got every option available to you if it can succeed without you personally doing the work. And the inverse is, is not true. If, if the business is deeply dependent on you showing up for work, uh, you've got very few options. You, you've got a, effectively a job, if you know, not to put too fine a point on it, where you can't really get out of it. And then you're, you're in this weird position where you got into business for the freedom, right? The freedom to do what you want, when you want, financial freedom, et cetera. Those are all, and for many of the entrepreneurs I speak with, the aspirations. And yet, if the business is dependent on you, you actually have less freedom than most employed people. That's very true. Like if you go to work for Procter & Gamble and you put in your 50 hours a week and you're a good corporate citizen, you can have your weekends, you can have your evenings to, to do the things that you want to do with your family, et cetera. If you run a company that's dependent on you, your life sucks. You're not only putting in your 50 hours, but you're working all the hours in the evening, the weekends, you're on call for your customers, you're thinking about it constantly in your back of your mind, worried that this is going to happen, that's going to happen. So you have none of the freedom and none of the benefits. So, you know, for me, I think if you're going to create a business uh, really, the aspiration should be if freedom is your goal to get it to survive without you, and that gives you the ultimate poker hand. Yeah. So you hold all the next plays, don't you? And of course, if you are part of the play, so you're part of that key human capital, then actually you could be at risk financially and probably the value of the business will be less, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just did this. I mean, the other piece of this is is that you can get out more cleanly if, if and when you decide. I just did an interview with a, a woman based in the UK. Her name's Jody Cook. She started a social media company. In the beginning, it was, it was, it was her. I mean, her, it was actually JC Social Media or something. It was her, her you know, uh, initials in the name of the company. So it was totally dependent on her. Uh, and over time, she realized that really what she wanted to build was something that didn't actually depend on her. And she ultimately came to the decision that she wanted to sell the business. And what she did not want to do, which is what most every entrepreneur in the marketing services industry has to do, was to sign up for an earnout. An earnout is when you have a, a, you know, a, a portion of the proceeds of the sale of your company at risk in the future, and you've got to reach some certain goals that the acquirer puts in place. And Jody's an independent woman, and she just had no interest in that, right, of, of kind of working for a company for three, five years and have some goals out there that she had. So she said, I'm going to create a business that's not dependent on me. And she focused on building out her standard operating procedures. These are like the, the processes that people need to follow to do the work. Right. And she spent months building out these SOPs. And I said, but Jody, I mean, for a, for a young entrepreneur like you, that must have been torture to, to spend all that time kind of systematizing your business and thinking about all the processes and so forth. So you said, yeah, but John, think about it this way. If you're going to go to jail, would you rather go to jail for four months or four years? That's <laughs> interesting philosophy, isn't it? And, and her point was, I could, you know, I could sell the company, but then I'm going to have to be in a four or five year earnout or I'm working for some middle manager who reports to some senior manager who reports to some division head for some giant conglomerate and have no control over my destiny. Whereas if I do this work in creating standard operating procedures now, yeah, it sucks for a few months, 
but man, I'm much better off. And so she sold her company uh, without an earner. She left two weeks later. And that's almost unheard of in marketing services. Yeah. Almost all marketing services deals have some sort of earner, but good for her for doing the work. Totally right. Yeah. So what's the reason you think then, John, that entrepreneurs fall into this trap? You know, I think there's an element of ego to it, if I'm, if I'm honest. Yeah. And I think I, I was, um, I was just, you know, the same, the same as I think many entrepreneurs were. It feels good to be wanted, right? It feels good to be the knight in shining armor that, you know, that, that swoops in and saves the day and fixes the customer problem. And, and this, you know, this happens in virtually every industry where, you as the owner gets brought into some really technical challenge or some you know, difficult customer relationship and you solve the issue. And, and for a few months or you know years, well, a few weeks probably, it, it feels good to be, to be there and be the rainmaker for your company. I'm reminded of a, I got a chance, this goes back 20 years, so, so bear with me, Steve, it, it was a while ago, but I got a, a chance to go to something called the Birthing of Giants. It's simply, it's been renamed something different these days, but it was, it was a group of 60 entrepreneurs who were invited to MIT's Executive Education Center for a three-year program on entrepreneurship it's called the Birthing of Giants. And we got to hear from these amazing speakers like, uh, uh, Pat Lanchoni, who wrote the five uh, dysfunctions of the team and lots of other uh, books in the area of leadership. He came in and spoke, and there was lots of speakers that came in. And one day, this guy came in towards the end uh, who just sold this company. And he started off the conversation with a poll. And he said, okay, raise your hand if you're involved in selling your product or service. And like every one of our hands went up. This is this is like 60 eager young entrepreneurs. Yeah. Like we were all kind of like the, you know, the fourth grader kind of with the, with the answer to the question when the teacher asked. Like we were all sort of like proud of that. And he said, all right, put your hands down. He says, here's the deal. You've all got the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. Hire salespeople to sell your product. Your job is to use those same skills to sell your company. Yeah. And it was like, for me, it was an epiphany. Like I felt like, like an amateur who had just seen a professional game for the first time. Like I actually saw that my job was not to do the work. It was actually to sell the company. And that, I don't mean sell it transactionally. I mean, to promote it, to be, to, to, to be having conversations with strategic investors, people who might one day want to buy the company. That's the job of the CEO. And, and I think, I, I'll never forget that meeting again. It goes back twenty or so years now, but it was it was a real light bulb for me. Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the principles that you've created within your writing and your books are all around that kind of take stock and be thoughtful about your role as the business owner, the CEO, rather than being the practitioner inside the business. Right? Absolutely. I think one of the things that that helps people get their head around that or start the journey down the road of, of getting it to not be so dependent on them is, is this concept of recurring revenue. Because for a lot of businesses, there are still transactional business models, right? So you, you, you kind of run around bidding on jobs, finding clients, responding to RFPs, win the project, and then it takes you two or three months to deliver. And then you kind of wake up, you deliver the project, and then you've got nothing in the top of the funnel. And, and you're on this kind of hamster wheel that gets 
really frustrating over time because you, you kind of have the sense, I think, at least I did at the time when I was in a kind of in a business, in a transaction business model where you're just not making any progress. You, you know, every month you kind of dread the beginning of the month because, you know, you have to go create the magic again next month, right? And, and re, you know, sell everybody. And so I think one of the things, in addition to finding one thing that you're really good at, as Stephanie Breedlove did, I think the other thing is, is to create some recurring revenue. Put your company as much as possible on an annuity stream where customers have to opt out versus opting in. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a, in a nefarious way or underhand way, but I, I do mean like if, you, if you're a carpet cleaning company, well, for, you know, like it, don't wait for your customer to call you to come in and, and, and clean their carpets. Most customers, frankly, have better things to do than, than think about how clean their carpets are. And most people only remember to clean their carpets well past the date where they should have had them cleaned, right? Whereas if you say, look, once a month, we'll come in on the third Tuesday of every month and clean your carpets. Let us know if you ever don't, don't want us to, but we'll be here on the third Tuesday of every month. And all of a sudden you've, first of all, taken something off your clients or customers list, your to-do list to remember to have the carpet clean come in every period of time. And number two, You've got recurring revenue. Now you can decide how many people you need, how many trucks you need on the road, et cetera. And it just, it creates this sort of domino effect where it makes a much more predictable business and ultimately a whole lot more valuable. So I'm a big believer in this, this notion of recurring revenue as, as, as an important element to driving a, building a valuable company. And of course, if it's recurring revenue, it's also bottom line value on the balance sheets as well. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, I just looked at this recently. The, the security companies, you know, the, the folks we use to secure our homes and offices, you come in and they, they put together the, the sensors on the windows and they call the fire brigade if there's a, a fire. Those companies have two forms of revenue. They've got their installation revenue where they come in and do the initial setup for the system. And then they have their monitoring revenue. And when, you know, the, the kind of 30, 40, $50 a month, they charge us to kind of monitor the system. Those companies, when they go to sell, a typical acquirer will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue because it's kind of one and done transactional, not very valuable. They'll pay between two and three dollars for every single dollar of monitoring revenue. Mm. Said another way, your recurring revenue is worth like kind of three, four dollars for every dollar of installation revenue you have. So it, it's that's really fascinating. Yeah. And it has it, like we see it in virtually every industry. And, Carpet cleaning, you can look at HVAC, uh, you know, heating and air conditioning. I mean, virtually any industry, your recurring revenue is going to be what acquires place the highest value on. You know, it's just struck me, actually, that there are a number of different businesses taking the same approach. I have the same now with coffee beans. Right? So I have a coffee machine. It knows broadly that every two months I, I need another three kilograms of coffee beans. And every three months I get a, a box of coffee beans. It's the same principle, right? Absolutely. And think about for that coffee company, how much more valuable you are than sitting around waiting for the phone to ring or buying Google AdWords, trying to get you to stimulate your purchase because that's what most people do. They effectively manufacture demand through advertising, whereas you're locking in effectively demand by subscribing. It makes it easier for you. You don't have to worry about it. The, the, you know, the, the morning you wake up and there's no coffee beans is like the dreaded morning of my life. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. And so knowing that you're going to get that, that order every two months or whatever preemptively 
allows you to just kind of sit back and relax and know what's coming. So it's good for the customer. It's not some nefarious thing. It's good for the customer. No, not, not only that, it makes it way, way easier for the coffee company because they're probably not, you know, you know, they're probably not growing their own coffee beans. They're probably buying them from a supplier. Hmm. And when you're at the mercy of a transaction business model, you never know how many coffee beans to buy. I reminded of a, of a, of a, of a, uh, a company I, I wrote about in the automatic customer called Age Bloom, and they do flowers on subscription. They focus on hotels that want to have like a fresh cut bouquet of flowers on their, their reception table. Typical flower store, at least in North America, I'm sure it's the same in the UK or similar, Typical flower store in North America will throw out 60% of its inventory every single month. Why? Well, because it's dead, rotting in your refrigerator, right? Like mm-hmm. you guess wrong. You you guess how many people are going to come in and want Gerber daisies versus roses versus daisies or whatever. And so you got a bunch of inventory you can't sell and you throw it out. 60% of the inventory in a typical flower store is thrown out. H. Bloom comes along and says, we're not going to sell flowers in some retail shop. We're going to sell flowers on subscription. We're going to focus on hotels, four and five star hotels that just want that bouquet of flowers, fresh cut every two weeks on the reception table. Their uh, spoilage rate, in other words, the percentage of their flowers they throw out every month is less than 2%. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's like if you think about which company would you rather own, which company would you rather invest in, I mean, it's it's not even an argument. A company have with predictable revenue, where you only buy the number of flowers you need to fulfill the subscribers you have, is a much different model than worrying about guessing how much you need every month. And again, for your coffee example, same thing. They're probably buying their beans from a third party provider, and beans have a shelf life. And if they guess wrong. They've got a bunch of beans they can't sell, whereas if they get guys like Steve to subscribe, they only buy the coffee beans they have for subscribers they need to fulfill. And it just changes the business entirely. It really does, yeah. So when it comes to that moment where I'm now going to sell my business, walk away and leave it, is there ever a perfect time to sell out? Mm. Well, you might make the case that right now is pretty good. I mean, I think you know interest rates are very low. And of course, acquirers in many cases, in particular in private equity groups are one of the most common acquirers for SMEs right now. They make their business model work on debt. Like it doesn't work without debt. So they take on a bunch of debt to buy a business and they try to sell it later on for a higher multiple. And they put a little bit of equity in, but they get a lot of debt and that allows them to juice their return on investment for their investors. Private equity is fueled on interest rates. And right now we're at a point in the history of our world where interest rates are still very, very low. And so that's creating an enormous sort of volume of, of, um, of, of sort of acquisitions. I think maybe on the flip side of that, I think we're also in a, in, a, in a point where a lot of SME owners have come through the worst of the pandemic. I realize as we record this, the pandemic is not over, but there is a lot of entrepreneurs that have kind of come through the worst of it and said, enough is enough. I, you know, I can't do this anymore. And they're willing to leave their company for less than they might have prior to the pandemic. And, and I, you know, I see that again, I do this built to sell radio episode or podcast. And in the last few weeks, I've had that sentiment two or three times where people said, yeah, you know, I, I, I was, I was just at my wits end. I wanted out. 
and you know, almost at any price. Yeah. And so I think those two things are offsetting one another right now. And on one hand, you've got a lot of demand. On the other hand, you've got a lot of really burnt out owners who are effectively uh, willing to sell for a lower mm. price. And so I think they're balancing right now. But you, know, you might make the case, at least economically, that right now is a pretty good time. So as we start to transition into me hacking into your leadership brain, the last time you and I met, we had a really fascinating conversation around Fortnite and how <laughs> you know, kids were getting dragged into Fortnite and consumed by video games. And that, that you had a great parallel to this, which was this whole concept of leadership being a bit like a parent. Just tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of SME owners, small business owners, think of their role as being the, the leader of their company, the CEO. Oftentimes, they're involved in doing some of the selling of the rainmaker, they're the driver of their company, right? And, and that's all fine. I think a lot of us would be better served thinking of ourselves not as the CEO of our company, but as the parent of our company. And again, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are parents. And if you think about your job as a parent, it's, it's you know, some people want their kids to go to Oxford or Harvard or some fancy school. But for most of us, we would be happy if our kids got out of the basement, they, 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 they went into the world as adults and they were happy functioning independent adults and, and, and like box check as a parent, if you're able to succeed and do that. And so, you know, despite the fact that many parents are sitting there with their, you know, their kids playing a lot of Fortnite and, and wondering, will they ever sort of get out of the house? I think that's the job as a parent is to kind of nudge them and cajole them and, and, and teach them to be independent functioning adults. And, and if they, if we are successful in that, then we've done our job. And again, I think if we go back to our job as, as the owner of a company, I think if you can get your business to thrive without you, to be independent of you, it is the most rewarding thing in the world psychologically, but it also gives you all the cards when it comes to the value of your company. So I think we'd be better served in a lot of ways, not thinking of ourselves as a rainmaker, or as the CEO, but more as the parent of our business. And our main goal is to, is to get it to become an independent, thriving adult. Yeah, it's a really great reframe. I love it. So we're going to now start to tap into your leadership brain, having led and run businesses and coached other businesses for over 20 years. I want to hack into that leadership brain of yours. So if you had to distill your top three leadership hacks or tips, what would they be, John? I mean, I'm a big believer in journaling and, and, and really reflecting on sort of what's working and what's not. And whether you do that in a, in a, in a sort of formalized program or, or just a white paper, a whiteboard every, every week or so. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in journaling and, and having the people you're leading also journal, I think is, is a big, is a big win. So I think it helps you one for yourself personally and, and two for the people you're leading, I guess, you know, to take that, that hack to another level, I think there are some really good journaling tools out there. I know I'm a user of the, um, the high performance planner. I think it's Bouchard, Brennan Bouchard's product. I mean, there's nothing magical about it per se, but it's a good journal. And I think having some sort of system around that can be, can be super helpful. So I'm, I'm a big journaling guy. Me too. So the next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this is typically where something has gone wrong. And as a result of it going wrong or not working out well, you've now used the experience as a driver and a positive force in your life and work. What would be your hack to attack? You know, I would actually go back to the very beginning of our conversation. And I think 
my hack was when I really got punched in the nose by Perry figuratively. And he told me in no uncertain terms that what I built was not a successful, not a valuable company. And so I take that, uh, although it was really strong cheese for me to hear at the time and very you know, difficult, frankly, for me to hear, I've now taken that and, and also, you know, it's really informed everything that, that we do professionally, all the books and so forth. So I think that's been super helpful. And I'm also maybe inspired a little bit by that fairly straightforward with business owners, uh, probably it's sometimes offensive at times yeah. where, you know, I make the case, hopefully uh, gently that, that a business isn't as valuable as they perceive it to be because it's too dependent on them personally. So yeah. I, I think I've tried to, 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 to honor that as, as, as time has gone on. Awesome. Last thing we want to do, give you some time travel. So if you could go and meet John at 21 and give him some words of wisdom, what would your advice to him at 21 be? Stop chasing other people's approval. I, I was um, at 21. I had graduated. I'd left university early because I hated university and I was trying to get a job. And I was in this funny zone where, you know, my my father had worked for a company all his life. And I, I thought, OK, that's what I should do. I should go get a job and, and, and climb the corporate ladder. And so I was sort of in this. I also knew at the time that I wanted to do my own thing, be an entrepreneur. And I, I was in this kind of really conflicted zone where I, 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 I wasn't sure which path to take. And I spent a couple of years um, working for a company and probably three years, actually. And I wish I had, if I could rewind the tape, basically just started as an entrepreneur at 21. I think uh, I would have learned more and, and I think I would have, you know, in retrospect, gotten as much, if not more experience just doing it. So if I was 21, again, I would say, look, there's one time in your life where you don't have dependence, you don't have stresses, you can live on a couch. Like you, you really, that's the time to start something. And really go all in. Is, isn't it? Uh, you know, some people yeah. have the opinion, oh, you should work for a company for 10 years, get experience, understand the corporate world, and then start a business. Well, good luck doing that when you've got, you know, a spouse, a mortgage, kids on the way. Yep. The whole idea just seems so much less attractive. Doesn't it, Jeff? Yeah. But at 21, I think that's a great time to start something. That's great words of wisdom. Thank you for sharing that, John. So we're very fortunate in the fact that in order to keep our conversation going and keep your our listeners connected with your work, you've been able to create a URL for us so we can get some free resources to share us, with us a little bit about how our listeners can get hold of some of that stuff. Yeah, just builttosell.com slash hacker. We put together a little landing page where you can get free um, a video series on the eight key drivers of, of value in a company. We've also put the nine subscription model. So if the whole recurring revenue theme was sort of resonated with you, we've got a, a checklist that you could identify which of the nine models might work for you. And then the art of selling your business workbook, which again is a, a digital workbook you can work through to help you think about um, what you need to do to get prepared to sell your company. So it's all free and it's built to sell.com slash hacker. Thank you for doing that, John. And that's some great resources. And we'll make sure that they're in our show notes too. And of course, outside of 
the corporate arena. You blog. You're regularly quoted in lots of different articles. So we'll make sure that your social media links are in our show notes as well. Thanks, Steve. It was fun to be with you. Love chatting, John. Good luck with the new book. Good luck with the uh, Valley Builder Systems continuous growth. And thanks for being on the community. It's my pleasure. Thanks, John. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.